Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the story of former helicopter door gunner Kirstie Ennis. I actually was raised by two Marines. So, you know, I grew up just watching this. I mean, I still to this day have the pictures of me at my mom's Marine Corps boot camp. My favorite shirt, you know, said my mom is a U.S. Marine. My Barbies wore dress blues. I idolize everything about the Marine Corps. We'll also meet retired Marine Corps Major Scott Hewson. Our ROEs, the rules of engagement, were so permissive. If they were driving a car, shoot them. If they have a cell phone in their hand, shoot them. If they have a shovel and they're digging a hole, shoot them. It was that intense. And then there's Army combat vet Boone Cutler. During those two years, I was given just about every chemical cocktail you can imagine. When people look at that cocktail, they want to know two things. One, why am I still alive? And two, why isn't somebody in prison? Because it was that dangerous. Welcome. This is to Warren Back. I'm Phil Briggs, and I'm a journalist and a Navy veteran. And for the last couple years, I've been working at a website that's called ConnectingVets.com. It's a military veteran news and lifestyle website. And over the last couple years, I've interviewed vets from all different eras. From World War II vets to Korean War POWs. From Vietnam vets who barely made it out alive. To a paratrooper who once smuggled booze down the most dangerous road in Iraq. Just to form the first official bar inside Baghdad. Also, his fellow warfighters could have, as he put it, a proper drink. Now, I've heard many stories from warfighters over the years, and they always fascinate me. They are warriors, up until their final discharge. And then for some, the struggle doesn't even start until they come home. This is the story of three American combat veterans, Kirstie Ennis, Scott Husing, and Boone Cutler. This is to war and back. So we'll start with Marine Corps veteran and former helicopter door gunner Kirstie Ennis. Now, if her name sounds somewhat familiar, it might be because right now, and I mean right now as I'm recording this podcast, she's at a base camp getting ready to make history as the first female above-the-knee amputee to summit Mount Everest. But we'll get to that a little bit later. My journey began in western Colorado, where I met up with Kirstie. Her first deployment was to Afghanistan as an aviation airframes mechanic. She would eventually train to become a helo door gunner. Now on her second deployment, she was with HMH-362, a squadron nicknamed the Ugly Angels. We talked about her life, starting with her early days as a Marine. You were an airframes mechanic. Mm-hmm. But the glory stories as a door gunner. So how the hell did you go from that? Aren't door gunners like this kind of coveted thing where, you know, it's like a tribe within the tribe, like to be that MOS, to be that person is sort of a, like a close off club. Yeah, no, well, yeah. I mean, so when I joined the Marine Corps, 
but I needed to get out of where I was. My heart was enjoining, um, but I was always too smart for my own good. You know, everything mm-hmm. came easy, athletics, academics, the whole nine. Um, so when I went to the recruiter's office, I basically said, hey, I want something that's so foreign to me, um, something that's going to challenge me and something that's just going to teach me just a new skill set altogether. And growing up, I knew nothing about mechanics, knew nothing about aviation. So I kind of pieced the two together and honestly wanted whatever would ship me out the fastest. And so we went down the list and uh, my heart was set on being air crew right off the bat, but right. the wait list was something like a year and a half and I just wasn't willing to wait. Um, so I took, um, yeah, airframes mechanic or helicopter mechanic is what it was. Yeah, um, yeah. And then went through the school Pick that up. It was super easy. Um, I hit the fleet and initially the guys in my shop did not want me there. Um, I was like the first female in ages, if not the first female ever. Um, and so I really had to prove myself to them. But once I picked up, um, you know, the mechanic side of things, the collateral duty inspector side of things, went through my first deployment and I just remember watching uh, the air crew guys put on their flight suits and just run around the flight line. I was like, you know, what? I want to do that. And after I got home from my first deployment, um, I went to my gunnery sergeant and said, what do I have to do? Because I want that. I'm going to do that. And I caught a lot of resistance. Um, I'm just not big enough, quite frankly. Everything mm. from my height to my weight, you know, doing speed reloads with a 75-pound ammo can just doesn't look like something that should happen for a 120-pound lady. So um, really, I fought tooth and nail to be able to wear those shiny gold wings on my chest. Um that I did it, but man, that was some of the hardest work that I've ever done. That's cool. And then I guess once you get through it, right, then you're totally in, like you're joking with the guys, the same as the guys are joking with the guys. Like you probably have even a cruder sense of humor. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, like, That's actually what I always say. I was like, yeah, I probably act just as bad, but talk way worse. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it totally is. It's a, it's definitely the good old boys club. And once they, once, once they trust that, A, you're going to do your job, better than they're going to do their job (laughs) and also protect them just as they are going to protect me, you know, everything changes. And it really is. Like I look back and, you know, flying and some of the crazy experiences that we had, like, I mean, I wouldn't change any of it. Um, Blood, sweat and tears. (laughs) Now, this was the hard part of the interview. See, Kirstie's not only a badass Marine veteran, but she survived a traumatic incident that would change her life forever. In June of 2012, Kirstie was headed out on a mission in Afghanistan when the helicopter she was flying in went down. Right before we hit the ground, like everybody knows, like... You know when you're on a roller coaster and like you have this pitting feeling like your stomach drops? Yeah. That's the feeling that you have. And in the moment right before the helicopter crashed, you know, people ask me all the time, like, oh, what'd you do? Did you pray? Did you, you know, what was going through your brain? But it was weird. I almost went right back into like, you know, I'm a door gunner, you know, marine mode. And I counted down just as if I normally would if the helicopter were landing safely. So five, four, three, two, one. And then we hit the ground. When I was knocked out and I woke back up, I wasn't in any pain. Like, I didn't feel anything. It was, there's a bunch of people screaming. My NVGs had obviously, like, been knocked off and thrown off somewhere in the helicopter. 
And so I couldn't really see what was going on. It was now nighttime by this point. In my mind, I'm like, yeah, I'm hurt. They're going to sew me up, but I'm going to go right back to it. Like, they can't send me home. <laughs> you know, they need me. So when they finally, like, put me onto the safe, sound aircraft to send me and the other casualties back to Camp Bastion, I was just thinking, you know, it's totally fine. But when they wheeled me into that makeshift tent hospital and I saw that gunnery sergeant and that sergeant major standing there crying, my whole world fell apart. Because I knew. I, in that moment, I actually knew that I was really hurt. Like I said, I don't know if it was because I didn't feel the pain or if there was just so much fog of, you know, what was taking place. Yeah. I didn't think, you know, I didn't think I was going to lose my leg or uh, my arms were both ripped from their sockets or my back was broken. I right. was just like, there's a little bit of blood. <laughs> there's a Corman somewhere in that story that like <laughs> dosed you really quick with some painkillers. So I like, wish. I mean, no. Head trauma. Can't give it to you. <laughs> so really, that's just the body's reaction. It just mm-hmm. goes into like. Pink Floyd mode and everything's a trip. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty surreal. When I was laying on the floor of the other aircraft, the left door gunner of that aircraft yeah. came over to me and said, uh, don't close your eyes because you won't fucking open them again. So I just stared at this little blue dome light and was like, not closing my eyes until I say goodbye to my sister. Yeah. The way that like everything's in slow motion too, the things that you're thinking, the things that you're observing, like in those moments you can actually feel everything. You can feel color. You can feel sound. You can feel it all. I would imagine there's some recollection of some angel in your life or some moment that that made you feel good amidst the hell on earth you were living through. In that moment, the oh shit moment of all of it, my tail gunner, um, Gunnery Sergeant Pischel, he was my like idol. He um, came off of his gunner's belt and he actually hit the river rocks. I flew out the back before the helicopter like fully crashed and everything was, you know, filtered through and whatnot. Um, so he was laying on the floorboard in the, uh, the in the other safe helicopter with me, and he's obviously a, a wreck, just like I am, um, dealing with a ton of injuries and stuff. But he saw the huge hole in my face um, and that I was struggling to breathe, and he also realized that there was hydraulic fluid like dripping all over me. So what he did, like forced himself to basically like crawl over to me and throw his arm over my face um, to help keep like the dirt in Afghanistan shit air and hydraulic fluid and everything else out of my open wounds. And in those moments, like you realize that you are a family, like you are Mm -hmm. brotherhood. Like we just shed blood together. um, And now you're, you're going to lay next to me and put, you know, put me before you and your injuries. Knowing that they were still pulling for me is probably the reason that I got through my recovery the way that I did. Now, I met up with our next warfighter in Reno, Nevada. Boone Cutler was a psychological operations specialist, which meant it was his job to come face-to-face with the people who, incidentally, were usually trying to kill him. But he was trying to understand what was really going on on the streets of Sadr City. And the streets of Sadr City, when he was there, were some of the deadliest in the world. I've never walked in those shoes and I know there's millions out there that just can't fathom it and all I see is Hollywood and it's all fast forward and cool and it's jumping and like you know I, I mean it looks heroic sometimes it looks uncomfortable but I don't know is Hollywood right in how they get it or what is it like what's it actually like to be on a patrol when things get real like that you know I mean uh, Hollywood has to have some kind of action sequence like what every 12 minutes or something I mean, it's uh, it's it's a formula. 
from my experience in Sadr City, there, there was a hell of a lot more getting shot at than there was shooting back simply because they knew our, our tactics, techniques, and procedures. And so they would pop up and you knew you were going to get shot at for six or eight seconds and they were going to run like hell. And then it was a matter of, okay, by the time you figure out what direction the fire is coming from, they're gone. Yeah. They're gone. Getting ambushed, that's that's a whole other story. You know, they're they're trying to there's there's a large group of people trying to put effective fire on you. I've rolled through an ambush for six, eight clicks, you know, it was constant gunfire. For the most part, where they kind of get wrong or what what's never talked about is just the the face to face I mean, I, I know I've knocked people's teeth out physically in war. And and you don't really see that kind of stuff. And that's just, you know, you're close. You're, you know, most of my war uh, with what I was doing it was face-to-face. I was nose-to-nose with my enemy. Hmm. And it, it's a matter of identifying that enemy and having the, the amount of time to say, okay, I'm going to make a quick assessment. You know, am I dealing with someone here who is empathetic to the cause? Am I dealing with someone here who is, who is uh, an adversary to the cause? Are they somewhere in the middle? Where do they fit on that continuum? How do I affect either extracting something from them or making sure when they're done with this little conversation we're having, they're going to make sure they take the right message to the right people that I choose for them to take. Did you ever have gut feeling walking into an area that something was wrong, even though there were no signs? Did that sixth sense ever kick in? Could you guys feel that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There was this one time we were working this this street, and we're talking to shop owners. You know, it's, it's all kind of pretty mundane. And, and the way the patrol was set up, we're, we're set up on the side street, and to get out of there, you, you had to make a U-turn. And where you made a U-turn was around a, an island in the middle of the street. It separated basically where the shops were from the main road. And there was just dude just hanging out across the street. And I was like, that dude is just all bad. There's just something wrong. And so we got together and we got a plan real quick. And, and there was nothing really overt. It was just like, he's got no reason to be there. He's just, and he's trying to look like he's blending in, but he's just not. And so that gives you, that puts the hair up on the back of your head. Like, you know, what's he up to and why don't I know about it? And, and, and why is he even here? You know, he has no purpose for being here for real. So, okay, we're going to... We're going to run across four lanes of traffic, and we're going to roll this guy up real quick. And so, you know, we get a plan, and we're going to do this, and you can't really tell we're getting the plan because we're kind of being sly about it. And then all of a sudden, go, you know. We bolt across the street, roll him up, take him to the detention facility, and they start extracting information from him. And long story short, he was the lookout of the trigger man, and that island we had to go around was laden with IEDs. And they were waiting for us to turn to come in front of that island so they could set it off and kill us. Hearing that makes it easy to understand the tensions warfighters experience and the ones they often can't let go. But when I talked with Scott Husing, it was also easy to understand the adrenaline that's created from being in the thick of combat. He has over 24 years of service, both enlisted and as a commissioned officer, which any Marine will tell you is nice when your commanding officer was also once a grunt. His career spanned 10 deployments and he conducted operations in over 60 countries worldwide. And in his book, Echo and Ramadi, 
He described fighting in one of the deadliest cities in Iraq, where he was the CO of the 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, a unit known as the Magnificent Bastards. So a day in the life was holding up, cleaning weapons during the day, maintaining alertness, monitoring the area, the traffic flow. I mean, at the time, there were no cars on the road. They weren't allowed to drive. I mean, our ROEs, the rules of engagement, were so permissive. If they were driving a car, shoot them. If they have a cell phone in their hand, shoot them. If they have a shovel and they're digging a hole or thinking about digging a hole, shoot them. It was that that intense. We knew that if you were doing this thing in this city, you're going to get killed. And we let everybody know that. Mm. And the Marines knew that. And it wasn't lawlessness, but it was a matter of the ROEs being so permissive at that time that this is what we needed to do to kill the insurgents, which were putting a chokehold on this city. Going back through my history and, and reading and being a student, there's some great writing out there by other observers like David Kilcullen, who makes an observation that you can say you're going to provide security to a city. And I'm going to paraphrase Dave, and I don't want him to jump my business for misquoting him, but <laughs> right. uh, I'm still a fan, Dave. But nonetheless, he says, if, you, if this is all you can do, you're effectively killing the city. And that's what we did in Ramadi and many other cities in the Fallujahs and the Baghdads is we killed certain parts of the city to the point where they couldn't have chai tea shops. They couldn't have an internet cafe. They couldn't have regular traffic flow. So the other 299.9 thousand people that wanted to have a real life couldn't go about their daily life because the other 0.1% of insurgents that wanted to just kill everybody and kill Americans and unleash their reign of terror mm -hmm. in that town. They were allowed to do that because everyone was so fearful of retribution, murder, kidnapping, intimidation, rape, everything. It was not urban legend. I mean, these were things that happened and we saw that time and again through the wake of destruction that the insurgents in that town laid on the, on the residents. They were just merely speed bumps to get their hateful ideology across. I want to take a second and one, thank you for listening to the podcast thus far. And two, I'd like to talk for just a minute about something we can all do to help veterans. Now, I know there's a ton of charities out there and they all have great intentions, but Purple Heart Homes does an incredible job and they do it for veterans of all eras. See, it was founded by two Iraq war veterans back in 2004 who found themselves traumatically injured after an IED blast. As they made their recovery, they found a whole lot of resources that the global war on terror era veterans are eligible for. But they noticed there were not as many organizations that were really trying to help veterans before 9-11. And when you think about who those veterans are, well, a lot of them are Vietnam era veterans. They're getting older now, many of whom are grandparents. Like so many that served in the eras before 9-11, a lot of times their wounds went unseen, and they didn't discuss them. And maybe now they're falling on some financially challenging times, living on fixed incomes. But if their house falls into disrepair, or they have some sort of financial crisis in their life, or maybe they get sick, and they have mobility issues, and they need a wheelchair, well, that's where Purple Heart Homes will come in and fix it. They do things like wheelchair ramps, 
They'll help people who live in homes who have a roof leak, whether it's building a new house or just updating their existing home so that they can stay in it. The work that Purple Heart Homes does for our veterans really changes their lives. They've assisted over 500 veterans to date across the country, and you can help by establishing a chapter, volunteering, or joining their Hearts of Honor Club. Basically, give 10 or 20 bucks a month regularly, and they'll ensure that that money goes to help veterans with service-connected disabilities and aging veterans. You can get involved, you can donate, and you can find out all the information you need by going to purpleheartharmsusa.org. That's P-H-H-U-S-A.org. You really want to thank a veteran for his service. Join the Purple Heart Homes Hearts of Honor Club today. Share with me, what's the pace like? So during the day, you said it's a city of 300,000 people. So there's people there living their lives. I mean, they're selling chai tea, they're selling shoes, there's uh, meat markets, there's like, you no. know, there's stuff going on no, during there, the there day. There wasn't, not at that time. There was nothing open. And it was, it was literally like a ghost town. Everyone was sheltered in place because we were fighting during the day. The insurgents were running free during the day. There'd be sporadic firefights during the day. And we'd hole up because it was suicide, as we learned early on. We're going to go out. We're going to react to this. And we quickly realized that fighting during the day was foolhardy. When we got a couple of convoys shot up, one of my sergeants got shot. And I said, never again. We're not going out during the day. We're going to hunt at night because we have superior optics. We own the night. The aviation can fly at night. The tanks can shoot at night. They couldn't fight against us at night. And when we roll up on them, they're normally fast asleep because they're human. They, they were lazy and they wanted to sleep. And they wanted to pick and choose when they'd fight us, which is their prerogative. It was their territory. It was their town. They spoke the language. They knew the people. They knew who to intimidate. They knew where to hide. And we were learning the land as we went. So... The only advantage we could use on our side was to hunt and fight at night. And that's what kept us alive, I think, for the most part, and really ensured that we killed more of them than they ever killed of us. Was there a day or a patrol or an incident that stands out as like, you can't believe you're all still here? <laughs> I mean, absolutely. The, the battle on December 6th in 2006. Entire city of Ramadi was under a complex coordinated attack. We lost the first Marine in the battalion, Corporal Dustin Libby, and we were just slinging lead, man. And rockets and tanks, tracers lighting up the sky everywhere you went. Explosions, you just didn't know where they were coming from. And the boys were going at it and just crushing anyone that came within arm's reach. I mean, they were literally that close. They were throwing grenades into positions. Every single unit in zone that night was under heavy fire. By the time it was all over, we were literally sitting there thinking, holy shit, did this really just happen? And for a guy that had been in combat before, too, you know, I thought, geez, this is game on. Yeah. They're, they're, they just really stirred the hornet's nest. And at, 
after that point, because we'd only been in the city a couple weeks, if that. And at that point, we talked to the other commanders in the area and we just developed this plan to constantly stay on the offensive and not sit static at these firm bases and go out and really hunt the insurgents and not let them come to us. Mm. Where I think up until the surge in 2006, which Abizade ordered, they were so hamstrung, not only by the rules of engagement, but like manpower and what they could do in zone. They just couldn't apply that constant pressure everywhere they wanted to. So we flooded that battle space and the guys were just constantly patrolling every, every little outpost in that city all over. And this is a city of over 300,000 people. So this isn't like some podunk village yeah, out yeah. in the hinterland or the desert. It's a well-built, historic capital city of Alamar province and every single outpost, Army, Navy, Special Forces, OCFI, which is other coalition forces, Iraq, like Rangers and all the enablers, constantly going at it. They were just constantly crushing these guys and we were winning. That fueled our intensity to keep fighting. And when we yeah. had to transition to other parts of the city, we, we almost were apprehensive to leave because we wanted to continue to fight. For some, the combat continues. For others, demons start to sink in. But for all three warfighters, it's about to get worse. It's all ahead on the next episode of To War and Back. Why wait? Binge all episodes now, exclusively on the Radio.com app, or get this week's episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. On behalf of the production team here at To War and Back, I wanted to thank you for listening to this episode. And before we get into the next one, I wanted to share just a couple really heartfelt things. Specifically, I want to share with you three organizations that are doing incredible things for veterans. There's the Kirstie Ennis Foundation, a nonprofit that she founded to support deserving organizations and help improve the quality of life of veterans. Whether it's funding to help a veteran business expand or whether it's taking veterans outside to experience firsthand the healing powers of Mother Nature. Supporting the Kirstie Ennis Foundation is supporting veterans. Major Scott Husing and the Save the Brave organization has a simple philosophy. There's no pill, no prescription, and no vaccination that can cure the effects of PTS better than connecting with fellow vets. That's why when you donate to savethebrave.org, veterans go on fishing trips, they go on hiking trips, but more than anything, they stay together. Just hanging out. Fishing for the afternoon. I mean, getting back together again is what makes the difference real. And it's also what's really going to make a difference in the epidemic of suicide. And that's where Army veteran Boone Cutler really wants you to make a difference. Now, if you look up livetotell.org, you'll find the incredible story of Lance Corporal Johnny Lutz. Lance Corporal Lutz fought the good fight with his PTSD, but sadly took his own life. But now his name and his life serves to inspire every generation behind him. LiveToTell.org also has an annual calendar full of events and get-togethers. Whether it's concerts or backyard barbecues, they're always ensuring that the warfighters stay connected. Surviving combat is hard. Surviving with the memories of war can be even harder. But through the work of the Kirstie Ennis Foundation, SaveTheBrave.org, and LiveToTell.org, there's a few places out there doing the work to ensure that warfighters don't just survive, but that they thrive. Supporting any of them is the best way to say thank you for your service.
Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.